Good morning, everyone. And uh, welcome to uh, ALX 303, the art and science of conversation applied to uh, Alexa skills. My name is Amit Jotwani. I am technical evangelist on the Amazon Alexa team. Uh, and I'm really excited to have uh, uh, Daniel Framer, Lucas Ives, and Jason Haber uh, from the Pullstring team join me today for this talk uh, to give you an understanding of what it takes to build a really good conversational skill. Uh, and they will give that background from the point of view of uh, a skill called Bosch and the Grand Tour. Uh, so Pullstring is the team that actually built that. Uh, and they will give you uh, an insight into how they actually went about doing that. Now, before we actually get into that, I thought it might be interesting and fun to start off with a bit of trivia. So um, what do you think that number is? That's right. That's how old planet Earth is. So let's do one more. What do you think that number is? That's right. That's how long modern humans have been around. Now, I know our ancestors have probably been around for a few million years, but the way we know modern humans to be today, they've been around for at least about 200,000 years. And then this final one, what do you think that number is? How long have we been talking? That is correct. That's how long we've been using voice to communicate with each other. We use voice to have conversation with each other, and that's how we exchange ideas and thoughts with us. And that's what, if you think about it, that's what we've been doing all week this at reInvent. We've been talking to each other and exchanging ideas and thoughts uh, with each other. But when you're creating skills, when you're creating a new capability for Alexa, what you really want to do is you want to create an engaging skill. So for example, I can just ask Alexa, Alexa, what's the weather? Right now in Las Vegas, it's 49 degrees with clear skies and sun. Throughout the day, you can expect more of the same with a high of 68 degrees and a low of 47 degrees. Now, that was really useful information. I didn't have to take my phone out. I didn't have to actually type anything. It was all I had to do was ask. Now, that was actually useful information, but not exactly what you might call an engaging conversation. What, with an engaging conversation, what you really want is you want some kind of back and forth dialogue with the user to move the conversation further along. Now, one really good example of that when it comes to Alexa skills is the Bosch skill. Uh, show of hands, how many of you have actually played around with the Bosch skill? Great. So for those of you not aware, Bosch is uh, a, an Amazon video show. It's a crime mystery show on Amazon video. Uh, and the premise of the show is that you have this LAPD detective who is actually helping out solve uh, crime mysteries. Now, Amazon partnered with Pullstring to create a Bosch skill. Now, the skill is essentially a choose-your-own-adventure uh, radio play drama sorts where the user is placed into the shoes of this LAPD detective and is now asked to solve this mystery that has just been uncovered. It's a really fun skill. And to tell you more about it and how it was actually created behind the scenes, I want to invite on stage Daniel Framer from Pullstring. Daniel. Okay, thanks so much for the introduction, Amit. Um, hey, everybody, I'm Danielle. I'm a conversation designer at Pullstring. Um, and uh, our team at Pullstring has powered skills such as the SpongeBob Challenge, the Grand Tour, and Bosch, a detective's case, which we'll be diving into a bit today. Um, so just to give you a little bit of insight into how our team at Pullstring works. Um, on the one side, you've got folks like my colleague Lucas, um, technical engineering folks. And then on the other side, you've got writers and conversation designers like me. Um, and the thing between us, the thing that sort of links us together, besides you know, friendship and respect, um, is an authoring environment or a tool set. Um, and it's been built by folks like Lucas. And this authoring tool empowers folks like me with no coding experience to design, write, build, deploy, and iterate on conversational experiences um, and skills. So that means that while I'm still the one implementing the architecture of the skill and um, you know, writing sample utterances for intents and slots and things like that, I'm not actually doing any coding, which is very lucky for everyone involved. Um, so my portion of this talk is going to be decidedly non-technical by training. I'm a playwright and an actor. Um, and as such, I like to think of this here, this stage, as a kind of voice user interface. Um, in this moment, I'm the voice 
you're the user, otherwise known as the audience. Um, and between us is this thing called the fourth wall, right, which is invisible and really easy to break should you decide you'd like to interject with some piece of information that you feel is really important to the art of conversation. Um, don't do that, though. <laughs> um, uh, but we recognize this thing to be real, um, and so it sort of is real. And I find it really useful to uh, think of voice user interfaces as we talk about them today as a kind of extension or an update on a very old theme with new considerations, certainly, but still some very old principles that still apply. All right, so... Um, Bosch, in particular, was conceived as a kind of radio drama where the user gets to break the fourth wall by making choices that dictate the outcome of the story. So let's listen to a quick slice of that experience so you can see what I mean. You park outside Nora's apartment building and climb the dingy stairs to her apartment. No answer. You turn the knob. The door opens easily. You walk inside. Places of shit show stuff everywhere. Shelves have been emptied. Drawers rifled through. Looks like someone was looking for something. Detective's choice. Which room do you investigate first? The bathroom, the kitchen, or the bedroom? So fun fact, that narrator guy is actually very British in real life. Um, so if what you just heard is a kind of radio drama, but one where the audience gets to participate, then my role as a conversation designer is to figure out how to make that drama um, and the interactivity within it compelling and engaging. Um, so let's talk about the very first step in that process, um, and that's the step of going from prompt to pitch. Um, and this is the first step in many creative processes, no matter what your medium. Um, so what's a prompt? A prompt can be an idea that you have, it can be an assignment that comes from outside of you, um, and it can be really, really vague or it can actually be pretty specific, but it's usually the seed of something which is presented as a series of constraints. So some examples of prompts. Um, we want an episodic trivia game that's uh, based on such and such series on X Network, which was the prompt for the Grand Tour, one of the skills we built. Um, or I want some sort of compelling, interactive experience that answers frequently asked questions about my brand. Or in the case of Bosch, uh, we want to choose your own adventure type mystery detective narrative, which is somehow related to the newest season of Bosch. Um, and those constraints, they don't give you a ton of information, but they're a great jumping off point because they tell you what you're not building. And from there, I like to ground myself with two really essential questions. And those are who's, who's your audience and what's your source material? Um, and so for the first question, that means really trying to get inside the head of your end user. And for Bosch, that meant fans of the TV show Bosch. So it meant visiting Reddit boards, uh, reading fan wikis, finding fans amongst my friends even, and, and chatting with them. And by doing this, by queuing into sort of your audience's likes and dislikes, you can find out about storylines and characters that have stuck with them um, that you can riff off of in your own experience. You might even dig up some Easter eggs that you can use to delight them later in your skill. And then in terms of source material, it's the same idea, right? You want to steep yourself in it. So for Bosch, again, this meant watching episodes of the show, uh, reading parts of the novels, speaking even to Michael Connolly, the author of those novels. If you haven't caught on yet, my job does not suck. Um, and even listening to the soundtrack. So once I, once I did this, once, once I've read it, watched it, read about it, um, you can begin to sort of organically ideate and decide who or what you want to tell a story about. Um, and if you're creating a transactional skill, something that's non-narrative, these two questions are still really pertinent. Who's your audience? What's your source material? Right? Those things can ground you in some sort of creative process. And then once you know what you want your story to be, there's even more homework to do. Um, you want to find out everything there is to know about the character that you're inventing and the world that you're populating with those characters. So for Bosch, that meant researching the LAPD, LA hotels, hackers, escorts. Um, and this part is pretty fun, right? It's allowing your imagination to kind of run wild, letting one idea collide into another idea, sort of letting your yeah, imagination take the lead. 
Um, and from logging all this work, it's kind of inevitable that an overarching story idea begins to form. And this is what I call your pitch. Um, and your pitch is far more specific and nuanced and rich than your prompt. So again, we started with something like, we want to choose your own adventure detective narrative, which is somehow related to the third season of Bosch. Um, and this is now, this is an excerpt of the pitch that we actually submitted to Michael Connolly, the author of the novels, for approval. Um, so Annabelle Crow, who is a character on season three of Bosch, who plays um, uh, an escort and a suspect in a murder case. Annabelle Crow leaves a voicemail for Bosch. Her friend Nora is in trouble. Nora was having some issues with a client, a married guy who said he wanted to leave his family and be with her. Nobody's been able to track Nora down for days, and Annabelle's worried that something really bad has happened. Could Bosch look into it? You, the user, are a new recruit at the Bureau. You've been there just a few weeks. Bosch briefs you on the situation and asks you to handle it discreetly. Um, so as you can see, this pitch that we now have has some exposition and background. Um, it specifies the role of the user. It talks about what the user's journey is going to be, um, which is going to be to find this missing person. And then it also, the longer version also specifies the solution to the puzzle. So you've essentially now created an outline for yourself, which has all of the major information points that you need to ground yourself as you actually begin to write and design. Um, okay, but let's say you have your pitch, and let's say it feels like it has the potential to make for a really interesting interactive experience. We still have a pretty big design challenge ahead. So we're all probably pretty acquainted with this, a, a story arc, right, from like middle school English, with its rising action and its climax and its falling action. Um, and in mediums where there generally isn't interactivity, like stage and film and TV, um, it can be pretty straightforward, not necessarily easy, but at least straightforward to um, try to stay true to this structure, right? Um, and and the structure, again, is a kind of, it's a pretty tried and true formula for getting an audience to engage and lean in. But once you introduce that element of interactivity, once you break the fourth wall, um, there's a whole new level of complexity, right? So if, if, again, if somebody decided to shout out something from the audience, how I respond to that in the moment directly afterwards is going to dictate how um, delighted or disappointed or uncomfortable everyone feels in the moment after, just as much as anything that I've pre-planned here. Um, and so the thing that you design to take that interactive element into account is your decision tree or your game mechanic. Um, and it can look something like this. So for Bosch, because of timeline and budget constraints, which you'll be hearing a bit about from Jason, um, the game mechanic that we settled on was a pretty uh, simple one compared to some of the crazy choose-your-own-adventure story maps that you can find out there. Um, there are essentially three storylines, um, and each one has a series of binary choices along it. One of the choices is essentially right and keeps you going along that story path. The other one is essentially wrong um, and dead ends you and rewinds you back to the, the path that you were going down to begin with. And then only one of the three story paths actually leads you to the solution. Um, so the real design challenge then is grafting this story arc that we know and love from middle school onto our decision tree. So that no matter what route the user is going down, no matter what choices they're making, they're still experiencing some sense of this rising, driving action, a climax, a really exciting climax, and then falling action. Um, and so how do you do this? Our method for Bosch was to split the story up into what we called a series of segments. Each segment was delineated by a user choice. Um, and we found that it was always really important to be thinking really specifically about cause and effect. So this thing that's happening now can only happen because the thing that happened just before it happened, right? You can only, uh, you only know to go find Nora's best friend at the retirement home because you got that lead from Tom in the hardware store who you met earlier. Um, and this sense of cause and effect can help add to the drama, rise the, uh, make the stakes higher, and keep that action rising rather than flatlining. We did some other things, too, to help with this. We added a sense of a ticking clock at the outset of the skill. 
So Bosch says that you've got a day to crack the case. And whenever you make a wrong choice or a mistake, you get lines like TikTok detective, except like three octaves lower than that, because Titus Welliver, who plays Bosch, has an extremely low voice. Um, and we did a, a few other things to drive the action. We would introduce more characters as the storyline progressed um, and more sound effects. Uh, we made sure that there was a clear climax for each of the storylines, usually in the form of some major event, a car crash, or uh, discovering someone somewhere that you didn't expect them to be. And even the musicality of the narrator's voice would tend to build and intensify, um, and, and the speed that the narrator spoke would, would do the same as we progressed along the storyline. Um, and so all of these things can help to get your audience to engage and want to stick around for the ride, right? Um, okay, so now we've discussed a process for going from prompt to pitch. We've talked about grafting this uh, story arc onto our gameplay mechanic. Um, and all of this can make for a tremendous amount of complexity. So what are some tips and tricks that we've learned along the way to help us out? Um, one best practice across the board is to just keep choices for your users simple. You want to avoid cognitive overload, um, and so a way to do this is to make sure that the prompts that you're giving them, if you're giving them specific choices within those prompts, uh, are, are really simple and straightforward um, to repeat back. So they're, again, they're repeatable, they're recognizable, you don't have more than two or three. Um, another one is you want to avoid content explosion or content creep. Um, and a tactic for doing this that we've discovered is something that we call the illusion of choice. Um, and what this basically means is that you're giving your user a prompt uh, with obviously some choice within it. You want them to feel heard and like their choice is actually having an impact on the world. But once they make that choice, you give them two or three lines of catered content and then actually route them back to the path that they would have been going down anyway. So what this does, again, is it allows your user to feel heard without exploding your content. Um, and if you're using voiceover and sound effects, again, things can get expensive quickly, so you can't have endless branching. So we've found that this is really helpful. Um, also, your ears are your best design tool. You want to keep sound and audio in mind the whole time you're designing and writing. Uh, so that means speak your lines aloud to yourself. If a line that you've written doesn't sound natural when you say it aloud, um, it probably won't sound natural in your skill either. Um, and it means doing table reads, even, of scripts that you're writing, uh, getting together with some friends and reading everything out loud. It can be a lot easier to determine what you want to change when you're actually listening to it um, than when you're just staring at it on a, on a page. Uh, so th that can be also really helpful, is those table reads. Um, also, every voice that you introduce in your skill is a character, and this includes Alexa. So give some thought to how characters in your skill might actually relate to Alexa and how Alexa, in turn, might react to them. This wasn't totally relevant for Bosch because we ended up going pretty much all voiceover for that skill. But in Grand Tour, uh, which you'll hear a clip of a little bit later, we introduced a sort of playful dynamic between the show hosts and Alexa. Um, and they do this in the Wayne investigation as well. Um, they sort of make a character choice for Alexa, and this is another tool that you can use to sort of up the engagement factor. But one warning here, you can't actually have your uh, voiceover characters say Alexa's name. There are some sort of ways to do it where, where the mic doesn't get triggered, but often uh, it will trigger the mic. So, nice. So <laughs> be careful about that, um, and think creatively about how to handle those situations. Um, you also want to think of your user as your sort of your scene partner in an improvisational scene, um, capable of saying you know anything that a person in real life would say to you um, in a moment of conversation. So that means uh, crafting really robust intents um, with a lot of sample utterances. This is a key to user success. While we don't necessarily have the capability right now of matching absolutely everything that's thrown our way, doing a good job of trying to really sort of predict and empathize with your user um, is a key to designing well for these conversational experiences. And at Polestring, we're also fond of what we call the zen of fallbacks, or the art of the fallback. And what a fallback is, is it's basically um, how we script the system to respond when a user says something that we aren't anticipating or when ASR thinks a user has said something that we're not anticipating. So you want to make sure in these moments that you're thinking really creatively about how to handle errors, basically. 
Um, and ideally, you want to keep the responses in the world of the skill um, and even find character motivations for them. So for example, in Bosch, again, if a user doesn't respond to a choice point with something that we recognize, they'll get a light reprimand from Bosch, Titus Welliver, um, saying some version of get on the case, detective. And this sort of allows users to stay in the world of the experience, even when they're pushing its boundaries and hitting walls. Um, so it's, it's really useful to think creatively about this. We found to do, that doing this is often far more effective than any version of, you know, sorry, I didn't get that. It's also really useful to expect that users might interject with things that are relevant enough to your skill that you might want to respond to them, but don't have anything to do with the prompt that you've just given them. Again, this sort of relates to thinking of your user as an improvisational scene partner. Um, so we call these, at Polestring, we call these global interjections. Um, and in, in the, these cases, you basically have to just decide what you want to respond to. Um, and then if a user does interject, you need to decide how you're going to, once you've come up with your response, how you're going to transition back to the content that they were in when they interjected. So again, that means sort of crafting the response that you want for, for these types of interjections, crafting some sort of transitional experience. What we often do is just create a line of transition, like now where were we, or uh, let's get back to the case, and then reprompt the user. So again, that you're, you're sort of pushing them back onto um, the, the track that they were on. Uh, I, I heard a really great piece of advice from a woman at the company episode once, which was something like, um, users won't care if they're on rails as long as they know that the train that they're on is leading to awesome town. So I, I think that's a good one to keep in mind. Um, and finally, testing strategy. So um, a lot of writers say that writing is rewriting. And I think in the conversational space, the equivalent of this is um, writing is debugging. Um, and so basically what this means is that while it's useful to, of course, script kind of a happy path first, so basically how a user might ideally interact with your experience, once you've shored up that content, you want to be testing its edges and revising constantly as you do. Um, also, you want to do ASR-specific testing. So, um, and you also want to take different accents into account when you're doing this. So we had amazing support from the uh, Alexa team, Jen Jin Hong, who's in the audience right now. Um, and she informed us, actually, at one point that uh, the word beluga, as in whale, was consistently resolving in the UK to things like burger. Um, and so you just want to be aware of those consistent ASR fails, and you want to see if you can add those um, to your sample utterances or modify content as a result of them. Um, and if you have a big skill, like some of the ones we've built at uh, Polstring, there is no hope of testing absolutely every conversational branch. Um, so in these cases, it can be useful to find a list of sort of randomized but representative paths to test. Um, and also doing a ton of user testing. Um, and the value of user testing goes beyond just getting people to sort of hit all the points of your skill. Um, user testing is so, so, so important. You make a lot of assumptions as a creator, inevitably, when you're crafting one of these things. And um, to have people test your skill not only means that you can find holes in it, but also that you as a designer can begin to empathize with segments of the user population that you haven't necessarily kept in mind while you're crafting your skill. Um, OK, so I think with that, yeah, I'm going to turn it over to Jason to talk a bit about project management considerations. Hi there, everybody. Uh, I'm Jason Haber. I was the project manager on this project. And as I know, you all love project management. And can't wait to talk to you about it. Uh, so let's talk about what it takes to build one of these skills with this really deep audio voice designed experience. I'm going to talk about sort of general scoping and talk about budget and then about how we schedule this out. <clears throat> so often when we're given these types of projects, we're given a, a hardship date. In the, in the case of Bosch, it was we need to have this skill out in time for season three. Now, ideally, these come in with plenty of time to go make them, but We've all done projects. We know how that works. Uh, so you know, we, we, we've got to make our skills sort of fit into this state. 
if we were doing a TTS only skill, just using Alexa's voice, we can treat that a lot sort of like building a text-based chatbot because we're just writing the, the text and Alexa will say it. But when we build out these skills that require that voiceover, that require that sound design, that will push us and add a significant amount of development time. In the case of Bosch and most projects, honestly, that usually would push us out beyond the skill launch. In this ideal world, you would write all your text, you would create your entire interactive experience using Alexa's voice, and then say, okay, now let's go record all that and sound design it all, sort of put them back to back. Um, this puts us over the ship date very frequently. So how do we pull it in? Uh, we can pull this in by scoping the project a little bit. We can pull this in by doing some crunch. Thanks, Danielle. Hopefully it'll never happen again. Uh, and we can do this by doing some creative optimization, which I'm gonna get into here. Overall, I tend to budget at least 30 to 50% more time and budget to these projects when you are adding that voice level to the project. This accounts for many things, which we'll get into in, in just a moment. So let's talk about budget. Let's talk about how much more money and will this cost? What other resources do we need? So you can see over here, we have our basic sort of Alexa TTS skill. You need writers, you need engineering and, and solutions architect to support you. You need QA, submission support, of course, me, um, and a number of other like sort of small little things. As you add in these, uh, these skills that, that have voiceover and have this sound design, you need to get your audio engineering that's gonna record it for you. You need to get the editing of, that, of those audio files. You need to do your audio design, which could be creating original music or original sound effects. You need to pay your voice talent. You need to have a place to record your voice talent. Um, there might be licensing involving, involvement. You have to manage all the files that go with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, there's all these different, difficult, different costs that you have to consider when you're doing this. There's some ways to, things that can really help with this. Um, one big, big help is when you have a really good partnership with whoever you're working with. So most of the skills that we've worked on at Pullstring are actually skills that uh, are with either Amazon Studios or other partnerships. And for this skill, our partners at Amazon Studio were great about getting us music, getting us sound effects from the show, getting us access to episodes, getting us access to voice talent, uh, which is obviously extremely important to be able to have that and uh, helping us with recording sessions and, and all the different pieces needed there. Another thing to consider is the number of voice actors that you're gonna, have to need, that you're gonna need to create this skill. So every time you add a new character into the skill, you're gonna need somebody to voice that character. You can double up a little bit, but if you have too many voice actors or too many characters, that's just a lot, every, there's a cost associated with each of those, not just hiring the talent, but taking the time to record them and edit them and et cetera, do all of those things. Um, when it comes to the professional voice talent that's from the show or from the whatever you're working on, that's sort of your ID, that's the equivalent of like the visual image, that's what people want to hear. They're coming here to hear Titus Welliver, they're coming here to hear Bosch, so you wanna make sure that you're taking advantage of that. Um, another side of that is also making sure that you're keeping your writing to a minimum, keeping your, making the best use of the audio, of the lines that you're writing. Danielle touched on this as well but you don't wanna you know, record 40 different branches knowing that most people are gonna hear one branch through. Uh, you can play around with that a little bit because you do want it to feel fresh and different. So for instance, like uh, Daniel was talking about when you hit a fallback and, or hit a global interjection and you come back, we might have a couple variations on that line to keep it feeling fresh. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about scheduling, everybody's favorite thing. All right, so here's a, two quick example schedules here. Uh, the top schedule here talks about what Alexa-only skill would look like. This is actually a pretty linear process for us in terms of the creation and the creative process. We do our pre-production and our design. We go into full production where we're doing writing and the logic and the intents and basically getting it to a feature-complete build. We're doing some QA on that build to make sure it works the way it's supposed to. We're submitting it to Amazon. We're helping it through submission, and then we ship. Once you add in voice, voice talent and sound design, you need to sort of align this with your process. This is really where you can pull in that schedule is, is how much you optimize this, this timeline of where audio comes in. From a management standpoint, this also helps because you're not just having your audio team sit idle while your whole uh, writing team is going. They're sort of working in parallel. So let me talk about some key dates that are here. So during the design process, 
you really want to get your audio team involved with that process. This not just not only gives them a heads up on what's coming down the pipe, but allows them to work closely with your audio designer and your creative director to, to understand what, what this experience is going to be, to work together and think about that soundscape. So for instance, in Bosch, in the opening scene of Bosch, you're listening to Annabelle Crow on an uh, answering machine. And being able to sort of think about that whole vision together and what the headless experience is going to feel like to the user is really a big important part of building out a strong skill at the end. Uh, the next key date to, to talk about here is uh, the, the locking the voiceover script date. So you can see that sort of comes earlier in production. Now, this, it, the earlier you can get this in, the earlier you can start your next recording session, your next part, which is all the, re the recording session. But it's really hard to, you know, write all. You don't want to write all. It's really hard to write all your dialogue before you do anything else. But sometimes that's what you need to do. So in the case of Bosch and in the case of Grand Tour, we actually had to front load sort of the dialogue for the talent and get that in place before we started building out all the logic that actually hooked it all together. Um, this can be due to scheduling as well. So for the Grand Tour, we had a very specific time and window that we got the talent from Grand Tour, and we wanted to make sure to take advantage of that. So sometimes this can even mean that you're just writing tons of dialogue, knowing that you might only be able to use some of it, prioritizing what's there. Another thing you can do here is when you're in those sessions with this talent, the most valuable piece of your whole skill, in terms of the audio, keep the mic on the whole time, because they might be riffing and, and have random things that they're saying that you can actually pull in and use in your skill. Uh, this was especially, you know, with the Grand Tour guys, they're so hilarious that this was especially true with them. Um, this also comes down to the timing of the recording sessions. So as a project manager, ideally, I'd be like, OK, everybody's going to record on this day. But that never happens. We have to work around everybody else's schedule, especially when we're not using internal talent. So we, have to, we usually put some flexibility in that recording session. I usually use about two weeks, at least, at a minimum, of sort of the window of, hey, here's when we can record. You tell us where in those two weeks they're available. And being flexible there does make a big difference. I think the most important thing here, and this really is something that helps you pull in that schedule a lot, is your submission assets versus your launch assets. So for both Grand Tour and Bosch and other skills we've worked on, we often will submit, hit submission, and just have our placeholder basic voiceover assets that go in there. No sound design or minimal sound design, very minimal editing. Just enough to sort of say, here's every sound file you're going to hear in this final experience. For launch, for the launch assets, we've done a full sound design pass and really pumped it up. So we're adding in you know, the sound effects, the music, the, doing whatever editing we want to do on the audio files and swapping those in as we go. So throughout the submission process, we're sort of swapping out audio files one for one and really building out what that whole experience is going to be like. Now, there's a couple important notes here if you're going to do this. One is to make sure that your solution architect at Amazon, if you have one, is aware of what you're doing and knows that this is going to happen. Thanks, Jen, once again. Um, the other thing to be aware of is that this can actually impact some of your user testing scores during that submission period. So for instance, that same opening sequence, we did get feedback of like, well, Annabelle says she's on the phone, but I can't really tell because it just sounds like everybody else. And we knew internally that we were going to replace that with you know, an, uh, an answering machine style of that feedback. But still, we had to be aware for that feedback. And it actually you know, can drop your scores a little bit. Um, and then I think the other thing to think about is uh, there's a limit to sort of how many sound files you can put in a row. Lucas will talk a little more about this during his section. But you need to be aware of that, because if you, if you go over the limit of number of sound files you can play, audio files you can play in a row without asking for user input, Alexa will just come in. And there's inevitably a, a time during our development process and during submission when we're like, oh, wait, why is Alexa voice coming in here? And, we, and then we have to remember, oh, yeah, it's because there's more than five audio files. We have to address that either through creative um, audio work or removing lines or some other awesome creative decision that I look to my creative team to help figure out. Um, and I think, finally, the, the other thing to look at is the cost of change. So when you make these deep audio files that are like pieced together in many different ways, which Lucas, again, will talk to you a little bit more about, um, you'll see that every time you change one of those, it's just not a matter of just, oh, just remove that sound effect. You actually have to go into the software, make the change, re-export the file, reconvert the file, upload the file to Amazon again, and 
double check that you didn't break anything. Um, so it, there's a cost for change there. We, we, you just need to account for that when you're thinking about how that whole scheduling system goes. So there you go. That's some of the project management considerations that go along with uh, creating one of these skills. Now I'm going to hand it off to Lucas. So good morning. Thanks for, thanks for sticking with us. I know it's early. I know the party was last night. Um, so yeah, my name is Lucas Ives. Uh, I'm on the engineering side at Polstering. And um, Danielle was talking about kind of the two halves to, to how we think about what we do. Um, so I just wanted to take a straw poll before I really kick it off here. Who in here would consider themselves like a technologist or an engineer or someone hands-on keyboards building skills? That's most of you. OK. Um, who in here would consider themselves uh, more of a creative or a writer or a conversational UX designer? OK. Three, four, five. OK, the first group, you should find those five people at the end um, and talk to them. And if you don't have people like that working with you when you're building your skills, um, you should really think about that. Because uh, everything I've done over my whole career, well, it's probably worth backing up and saying that um, a lot of the DNA at Polstring uh, comes from a prior history at Pixar. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I spent about 10 years there. Uh, our CEO, Oren, was there for, for 20 years. A, a bunch of folks were, were there. Our CTO was there. Um, and there, there are a bunch of parallels between building technology for folks who work in the visual, visual creative medium and uh, folks who work with the written word. Um, and probably the most important thing that we pulled over with us from Pixar to Polstring was this idea that the art should inform the technology and never the other way around. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of hotness and a big party right now around deep learning and machine learning and uh, natural language processing, and, and you need all of those pieces to build conversational computing. Um, but what we've found is even if it's more work intensive, creative folks want to be able to curate the results of those complicated systems, or if they can't, they're going to just do it brute force by hand, because what they're trying to do is create persona and character. So any technologist here in the room that's building something uh, to result in a conversational experience, you should be looking to give the folks writing your content, which probably should not be you, and we'll talk about that too. Um, you should be looking to give them tools that allow them to craft character and persona. Um, so you know, at Pullstring, we've built some pretty complicated things, and we've built some um, some pretty straight-ahead skills as well. Um, anywhere from you know simple brand information skills uh, to an experience with 10,000 lines of dialogue um, that were all recorded. That if you stack them up end to end, would take you 24 hours to get through all of them. Um, and if you're visualizing that conversational graph and the logic that links all those things together, that's 50 to 60,000 nodes, give or take. Um, so so complicated complicated scenarios. Uh, there was one writer on that project. And so our goal uh, as engineers was to give her what she needed to you know, rig and manipulate and edit and be creative in that sort of space. Um, and so to us, that's what's hard about building technology for uh, computer conversation. You need highly available systems, and you need scalability, and you need, to, you, know, you need to understand how Alexa works, and you need to understand the ASK, and, and all those things. And once you do all of that, you're at the starting point of, OK, how do we take this technology and make it usable by somebody who's going to create an engaging, compelling conversational experience with it? So at Pullstring, um, the way we think about building technology to help folks like Danielle do this is by unifying kind of the three pillars or the three legs of the, the conversational computer conversation stool. Um, and those are you know, content, intent, and, uh, and context. Um, and we'll talk about each of them. In other embodiments of systems that people build to help folks write, uh, write skills or any sort of um, you know, chatbot or conversational experience, these things are frequently divorced. Um, they're kind of sandboxed. Your, um, you know, your content will be up to your writer, and you know, she's working in, in Google Docs or something, and uh, you've got a developer working on kind of your, I don't know, your Lambda endpoint or whatever is serving, um, you know, is talking to the ASK, and they're probably dealing more with the interaction model, um, and there's a Slack channel where you're dropping things back and forth, and, um, and your developer is pro probably also um, in charge of whatever context you're maintaining. 
um, you know, state that you're storing in, in DynamoDB or um, you know, pulling information about previous sessions. <clears throat> um, with very kind of tenuous links between each of those things. We very firmly believe, and we'll make assertive claims about uh, the fact that those are all parts of the same thing, right? Those are all different facets of, of one experience, and they need to be deeply linked. Um, make sure I get the right order here. So, it, it, you know, these may be obvious, maybe not, but I'll go through them quickly, what they are. So content is uh, what the user hears from Alexa. You know, what does she say? Is she, is she playing audio files? Um, just what, is, what are the things that are outputs of Alexa? Um, intent, I mean, everybody who's on the Alexa track is probably familiar with, like, the capital I intent, right? You got your sample utterances and you got your slot values. Um, but there's actually more of a qualitative um, definition of, in, of intent that we, that we really want to care about, which is what was the user trying to get across to you, right? The mechanism that we have for that uh, is, you know, Lex or, you know, um, Alexa's uh, intent recognizer. But what you're really trying to discern or elicit is what were they, where are they going? Where are they trying to get to? And what really helps you figure that out is that third bullet right there, um, context. We, we try at Pullstring to build systems that are sort of like effortless, effort, effortlessly stateful um, in terms of knowing where you are, where you came from, where are the places you could potentially go, um, and not just in this session, um, over all of your experiences with this particular user, uh, and allow um, our writers to leverage those pieces of information however makes the most sense for the particular experience that they're building. Um, because, uh, as you know, in, in Alexa, you're, you're kind of restricted to this universe of a, of a flat intent situation, right? You might have hundreds of intents in a complicated skill, um, and many of them custom. And they're all live all the time, um, at least today in, you know, in uh, November 2017. So that means that wherever you happen to be in the skill, you may start matching things that are irrelevant to where you are. Uh, so what we try to do is build a system that allows you to um, selectively listen for the subset of intents that you care about at that moment. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the other ways we listen for things. But it, that ability to kind of turn on and turn off particular intents by ignoring ones, even if they match, that aren't relevant to the current um, you know, uh, junction in your conversational tree, uh, that's a really powerful feature that allows, again, your creative professional to respond in a way that makes sense for the moment. Um, so, you know, today there's no way to disable intents, so we, um, Daniel was talking about the zen of fallbacks. We consider anything that doesn't match the, you know, the handful of intents that you're listening to at that moment um, to trigger a fallback, and then it's up to creative to, to decide how they would like to respond to that. Um, so, yeah, basically what I just said. We want to know exactly where you are um, and so we can provide context-specific information. Um, the, you know, the idea of context you, you could have an intent that was, um, that was dealt to, that was designed to deal with uh, questions like, what do you want, right? So if you are building a skill that's, um, you know, you're ordering a pizza, what do you want has a very particular meaning. If you're building a skill that happens to be, you know, picking an example out of thin air, a missing person's case with an LEP detective with a very low voice, what do you want? Maybe you may be interrogating somebody. Um, you may have surprised somebody. They're very different meanings, right? So if you have a what do you want intent um, that you may, may be reusing from another project, or, um, or it means different things at different places in your project, you need to provide a way for your writers to be able to leverage the particular context that you're in. And at Pullstring, um, we have notions of you know, your current context, um, a context a level above you, which may be related to the, um, the activity or the particular um, story point you're at or the scene that you're in. Um, and Danielle made allusions to global context, so things you always want to be listening for. Um, who plays Bosch? Uh, you know, uh, Alexa has plenty of global intents to recognize. Turn the volume up, turn the volume down, that sort of thing. So d different tiers of context are important, and if you can implement those things in your system, um, super useful to folks that, uh, folks that build them, um, your experiences. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about content as well, and we've talked a bunch about audio, so I'm going to keep along that train. Um, 
we build, uh, we build skills in TTS. We also build splashy, fully sound designed um, skills with, with voice actors. Uh, anybody who's done any uh, audio via SSML in their skills knows that there are some constraints that you have to deal with on Alexa. Um, so before we talk about those, I want to play an example from the grand tour of uh, the type of content that we were aiming for and that our sound designers were aiming for in the skill. I'm Jeremy Clarkson. I'm Richard Hammond. And I'm James May. And this is the Grand Tour Skill, delivered to you each week by us and this artificial intelligence device thing. Hello. Hmm, she seems nice. Here's how this works. Every Friday, there's a new episode of our show, The Grand Tour. Yes, and on the Thursday before each show, you'll get hints about what you need to look out for in that week's episode. Then, after the episode, check back for trivia questions related to those hints and the chance to win exclusive content. Understand? Okay. Um, so, as Danielle said, we used Alexa as a fourth character, um, as the fourth host of the Grand Tour. And uh, once the guys understood what we were trying to do, that sort of back and forth added a, a kind of neat dimension to the skill um, that's really kind of a plus on top of, um, on top of what you know about them from, uh, from Grand Tour and Top Gear. Um, there's a lot in that clip that you just heard, right? You had three actors, you had a TTS voice, um, you had uh, bespoke custom music, you had uh, you know, the engine of a Ferrari, we actually went on site to record. Um, all layered together, uh, you know, this is all done in Pro Tools in a professional studio, um, everything was recorded, you know, fancy ribbon mics, the, the whole deal, right? Alexa limits you to 16 kilohertz audio, um, five audio files per response, that was one response, right? Um, and it's single track audio, and I don't, by that I don't mean mono versus stereo single track, although that's also something you have to deal with, um, and diff different LUFS numbers as well. But single track in, it's just play this one file. I can't say, here's my backing track, here's my vocals, here's my sound effects, and control, you know, time this this way, duck this this way. Um, so what our audio team ends up doing is pre-baking uh, a lot of what you just heard. Again, that's, that's one file. And if you're thinking that that takes a lot of effort to do and is very painstaking, you are absolutely right. Um, but if you want that sort of experience, th that's kind of what you have to do. You'll notice that Alexa's voice was in that file. Um, so we even went to the lengths of recording TTS to layer into the audio file for that experience. Now, Amazon is awesome and has been lighting up all sorts of regions all over the world, um, and many of them speak English. But Alexa is so awesome that she has a different accent in each of those in each of those domains, right? So there's English Alexa in the UK, and there's Indian Alexa in India. They're all speaking English, but they all have an accent. We had to make separate versions of that one audio file for each of those in order to layer Alexa's voice in there and get the timing to really pop so you're not worrying about spinning up an MP3 file and how that's going to affect your timing. Uh, <laughs> it's the secret to comedy. Um, <laughs> So again, you've now multiplexed every sound effect by however many domains you want to work across. Obviously, this impacts Jason's budget and can make his head explode, but we found that that's the way to get this sort of AAA audio experience. Um, so I kind of want to wrap up by talking about this slide, which yeah, I heard a couple of chuckles. This, to me, is kind of the the super exciting thing about building on Alexa today. We are at an amazing time in 2017 with what Amazon's building, with what technology folks all over the world are building, where speech recognition and natural language understanding um, and cloud computing, they're, they're not um, research paper tricks anymore, right? They're not, uh, they're not uh, things that you know, Ray Kurzweil was envisioning and writing about but aren't real yet. They're here today. The technology is finally good enough for a purpose, right? I, I don't know about you, but in, in my career working with a lot of creative people, you tend to find that the folks that are good at realizing a creative vision are different than the folks that are good at putting together all those technological components and, uh, and building a system 
uh, that can be used to make, a, a, in this case, a conversational experience. So I, back to my straw poll at the beginning, I would encourage anybody who's, who's building a skill, whether it's a narrative skill like we've been talking about today, um, a brand voice skill, uh, the next iteration of a banana facts skill, at any of those things, you should get um, subject matter experts, you should get writers, folks that are talented at, uh, at using the written word, at authoring dialogue. Um, and of course, you should have user experience designers and folks who are, are good with VUIs, but what we're really heading for here is the ability to really converse with technology. And, and we have people who are good at conversation, right? Those folks write screenplays, those folks write uh, novels, they write children's books. Um, they know how to turn a phrase. And so we would love it if you used our technology at Pullstring, but if you're, whatever you're doing technologically, you should be focusing on building systems that make it easy for those folks to, to create, because I think you're just gonna end up with much more compelling, much more organic, uh, much more engaging conversational experiences. Um, and so before I go, I wanna talk a little bit um, just about what uh, Pullstring is doing today. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the platform that we use to build the technology that powers things like Grand Tour, Bosch, um, Match Game was just announced, and uh, the Destiny 2 skill is powered by Pullstring. Uh, please go to our website and check it out. Um, and uh, yeah, we've re we're releasing this uh, new product uh, this week and next, and so we'd, we'd love to hear what folks think about it. So please do check that out. And with that, I think I'll hand it back to Amit to wrap up. Thank you, Danielle, Jason, and uh, Lucas, for that fascinating uh, behind-the-scenes walkthrough of what it actually takes to build a skill uh, that's as engaging as Bosch and Grand Tour. Um, I wanted to leave you off with a few resources as you embark on this journey to build your own skills, which are engaging and actually uh, get, uh, get the user's attention. Uh, I wanted to point you out to Alexa.design slash guide, which is a voice design guide. Now, as we've been doing this over the last couple of years, there's a lot of best practices and tips we've learned from developers like yourselves, and we've brought it all together into this voice design guide. So as you start building your skills and you want to learn those principles, I would uh, highly encourage you to uh, check that out. Uh, there's also a, a white paper of sorts that we've actually uh, created, uh, which is uh, on Design slash standout, which gives you some tips and principles on how you can actually build skills that actually stand out uh, and uh, get more engagement from users. Uh, if you have questions, you want to talk to uh, our evangelism team, our solutions architects, we run office hours every Tuesday. Uh, so again, if you want to sign up for that, uh, you can do that as well. And then finally, um, one of the questions that we get a lot is, how do we make money? Right? That's, uh, that's a very uh, frequently asked question. And we've been running these dev rewards where we actually reward developers for creating that skills that are as actually very engaging. We measure the engagement and the top uh, X uh, number of developers or skills get those rewards. But as of this week, we've actually announced some new ways that you can start making money uh, through skills. And one of that is uh, the in-skill uh, purchasing. So you can now actually uh, sell your digital subscriptions from within the skill. And the second way is uh, by integrating Amazon Pay. So you can actually sell products, goods, and services uh, from, in, from within your skill uh, using Amazon Pay. So those are some of the new uh, things you can do. Uh, and with that, I want to thank all of you for coming. I know it's the last day. It's very early. Uh, thank you for making the trek here. Uh, we cannot wait to see what you guys build. Uh, so again, thank you very much, and safe travels. <laughs>